Welcome to the Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neil. The violin that you just heard was played by Dr. Shomitra Banerjee, who was my master's thesis advisor in India. He's a physics professor at the Indian Institute of Science, Education and Research, Kolkata, known for his studies on nonlinear dynamics in electronic circuits. He's a member of all three Indian National Science Academies and the World Academy of Sciences, and has been awarded the Shanti Swarup Bhatnagar Prize for Science and Technology by the Indian Council of Scientific and Industrial Research. He has written two books, Dynamics for Engineers and Wind Electrical Systems, and has edited and written parts of a book, Nonlinear Phenomena in Power Electronics, Bifurcations, Chaos, Control, and Applications. He is also the General Secretary of the Breakthrough Science Society, an Indian NGO for science outreach. From a young age, I wanted to study fundamental theoretical physics, but during undergrad, I started being turned off from quantum mechanics because I didn't understand it well enough from my classes. At that same time, I started learning about nonlinear dynamics and chaos from Dr. Banerjee's class and his online videos. He was a very good teacher, and he turned me on to this new fringe field of physics. At first, I felt a deep existential crisis, that I was failing my childhood vision of studying core physics. But in retrospect, I'm infinitely glad that he got me interested in this strange new world of nonlinear, chaotic, and complex phenomena. I dove deeper into this world and did my master's thesis under him, and followed that path into computational and statistical research on neuroscience for my PhD. Dr. Banerjee also taught another undergrad class I liked called The Methods of Science about the scientific process of observing the world, thinking of hypotheses, and conducting tests to arrive at answers. On the Zoom call for this podcast, I saw him after about a decade since I finished my master's with him and came to the U.S. for my Ph.D. In this conversation, we mixed some topics that he wanted to talk about with some questions that I had for him. We begin with science outreach that he feels very passionately about. Should scientists exclusively focus on their research or should they also take time out for outreach? What if that slows down their research? What should and should not be the content of science outreach? And what should be the role of media in science communication to the people? I then bring up the question of power imbalance between advisor and student and exploitation, which I have also discussed with biophysics professor Dr. Jose Alvarado in episode 48.2. I end by asking him, How does he see the attitude surrounding science in today's Indian society and politics? Okay, so let's start with the first question. Um, Should scientists exclusively focus on research? Or should they also take time out to engage in science outreach? Firstly, on this issue, my opinion is a scientist could become a scientist because he or she could inherit all the knowledge that has been created by humankind till that time. And because of that only we could become scientists. So, there is a societal legacy that was behind our becoming scientists and therefore it is our job, it is our responsibility to give it back to the society. Mm -hmm. Now, in what way? Mm -hmm. One could argue that by doing good science, we are contributing to the society. That is true. Mm -hmm. That is true. But at the same time, Science in any country can flourish only when the people who are coming to science come with a scientific bent of mind, a rational bent of mind, a logical bent of mind. Without that, 
Science becomes only a procedural issue. I follow certain procedures and thereby I get some results. And uh, well, it is true that some people do science that way, but that is not proper science. Proper science is effectively an act of asking the right questions, uh, taking the proper methodology to obtain answers to that question, and then finally presenting to the external world. And that can happen only when the scientist has a scientific bent of mind. The problem is that the society at large does not really promote a scientific bent of mind. In the ancient time, there was a focus, emphasis on belief, not to question. While hmm. in science, the essential thing is not to believe, rather to question it. So a scientist questions even the things that are taken to be established facts. For example, hmm. Newtonian laws were established facts. But still people tried to, people kept on checking it, rechecking it on various uh, different situations. And at some point of time we realized that it is not completely true because it could not explain the motion of the planet Mars. So what I'm trying to point mm. out is that even the ones, even the theories that we know to be true, we continuously check, test. And mm. that is the basis of science. While the usual mode of thinking in the society is believe what has been believed mm. by your forefathers, believe what has been told by some wise man? So, belief. Belief is the essential thing. Now, if mm. people inherit that way of thinking and come to science, they will only do a second rate of science. They will not do mm. the first rate science. So, it is necessary, mm. therefore, for scientists to reach out to the society to the main purpose of scientific outreach is to convey to the people how science teaches us to think. Mm. And mm. this is not normally uh, taught in usual courses, school and college mm. courses. Okay. Therefore, mm. I think that in the interest of science itself, it is necessary for scientists to engage in outreach, basically to to convey the idea that science has a specific way of thinking. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And that cannot okay. be done by simply hmm. uh, engaging in research in one's own lab. Hmm. So the second question that you had, you know, that you wanted to talk about is, what if these um, science outreach efforts negatively affect one's scientific output? And I think this is a more relevant question today because it seems like science is becoming much more like industry where there are so many scientists and always so much pressure to publish that it's becoming kind of competitive. So a lot of scientists could say it's really important for me to spend all my time and effort in just doing the science. Uh, what is my incentive to engage in science outreach? Uh, firstly, uh, science outreach efforts should also be uh, given due weightage by the, the, the institutional administrators. What happens mm. is our institutional administrators, administrators mostly count numbers. How many papers? Yeah. And even mm. the quality of the paper, the impact of the paper, these are also counted in terms of numbers rather than yeah. the, the real impact. Uh, Einstein, Podolsky and Rosen's paper had practically no impact for 30 years. Mm -hmm. But it is a seminal paper which led to the whole idea of uh, entangling. So, mm -hmm. so the point is that uh, impact of a paper cannot be properly uh, judged by just numbers and today you know that these are being uh, manipulated in various ways. So mm -hmm. I'm not going into that. My point is that 
the scientists, the science administrators or institutional administrators should incentivize a scientist's effort to reach out to the society. That means mm. the aspects that are considered when uh, when considering a tenure or a promotion of a scientist, this should be one mm. parameter that should be kept in mind. That is one thing. Mm. But mm. apart from that, supposing it is not done by the science administrators, then also it is a, a matter of ethics of a scientist to give back to the society in full measure and the way we mm. can give back is most importantly is to, to, to engage in outreach. So it is mm. also an ethical issue for the scientist. So there are two aspects mm. of it. One was that the administrator should consider this as an important uh, part of scientific activity, which they don't. And secondly, mm -hmm. a scientist should also not look at science merely as a career. Uh, mm -hmm. The reason that people argue that it does not really positively affect my career is that often people take science merely as a career. So, mm. name, fame, uh, uh, position, uh, tenure, and uh, see, all these are the things for which we are doing science. Often it comes to that, which is not mm. good, which is not right. So, mm. science is something that we do because of mm. our love for nature, because of our curiosity about nature, because we know, want to know the secrets of nature. And that should be our driving force, rather than a promotion, uh, rather than uh, getting a tenure or not. So all that become often uh, our driving force. So career-driven mm. science activity is not the kind of science activity we should aspire to. Mm. Um, so there was this question that I wanted to ask at the end, but it seems more relevant to ask it here. So before we talk about more science communication, I want to ask this, what I think is a related question. One thing that I've experienced and my friends in graduate school have also experienced multiple times in multiple situations is that there seems to be a very big power imbalance between advisor and student in, in graduate school, in, in, in PhD. Um, so the student depends on the advisor over here for example, not only for their funding, but also for getting the PhD degree. So um, in a lot of cases, it's seen that the advisor kind of, you know, misuses this power that they have. And this is particularly worse for international students, because if for some reason your advisor is unhappy, then not only can your funding be cut off and the chances of your PhD be gone, uh, you might have to, to be forced to go back to wherever you came from. So in a lot of cases, what happens is that the advisor no longer thinks of the student as a human being that they have to mentor, but some kind of a computer or something that they can just exploit to get as much output as possible. And um, so I feel like this is one of the kind of pitfalls of graduate school or academia, one of the reasons that a lot of people do not want to uh, come to graduate school because they have heard of this kind of horror stories. These don't happen so much in industry or, or uh, companies because there are there is more oversight, there is human resource department, etc. So, but in academia, the same freedom that you get, which is a good thing, can also become a bad thing because if an advisor takes advantage of all their freedom and kind of lack of oversight to sort of exploit the student. Um, and this is kind of connected to the pressures of publishing that we were talking about. So I am, I wonder if you have any ideas for similar incentives that maybe the administration could put in place to, you know, ask to basically uh, require advisors to be better mentors rather than just produce research to be better teachers, or maybe there are some other solutions to this problem. Uh, 
firstly i would say that the problem is basically because of the issue that i raised in answer to the last question mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. people take science as a career and they will do anything to further that career and that yeah. is true for the advisor also for him mm-hmm. or her uh the phd students or the postdocs are basically tools to achieve their end mm-hmm. so if you if you look at science merely as a career that is inevitable but mm. if people do not look at science as a career but at emotional pursuit then the mm. the people around you basically your mentees are uh, important contributors to the line of work they also have a brain mm-hmm. they are not just couple of hands they can also think they can also contribute to the idea it's not that the supervisor generates the idea tells students what to do and he, he or she does it uh, be it uh, carrying out some procedure or writing a program or whatever this is not the right kind of science in a right kind mm. of scientific setting the supervisor is only sort of helping a student to learn how to do research and then carry out a mm-hmm. research problem on his or her own so mm. the ideal situation is where the supervisor gives the student the freedom to think to choose a problem and if the problem choice is wrong or something that will take 16 years then the supervisor may say no no this is not the right problem but that freedom should be there in the student to think now it is true mm. that many students are unable to think i have also come across that kind of students but always my pursuit has been to enable the student to think independently because tomorrow that student will become a professor so mm. tomorrow the student will will knock at the door of some university to become a faculty member right and then he or she will be mm. expected to produce uh, independently and therefore independent thinking creating the ability in the student for independent thinking is a very important part of mentorship but unfortunately mm. as you say that doesn't happen often and the reason is this mm. now uh, regarding the remedies well mm. that is not something i am very sure of because mm. uh, often it is a gray zone often the supervisor uh, Or, or or the institutional administrators, it is difficult to identify which supervisor is doing his or her job properly, and which supervisor mm. is not, because ultimately mm. they see papers coming out of the lab. Mm. Therefore, it is difficult. It is to be done more at the departmental level, more at the level of departmental administration, where we see or. the departmental administration the hod or uh, i mean somebody who is responsible should regularly talk to the students find out what kind of problems they are facing and if there is a red flag then some action has to be taken i mean one has to talk to the supervisor but as you know if a tenured mm. professor he can do nothing about it in india also they, mm. they, they, these are permanent positions you can do nothing about it uh, and mm. if the person says that no no i am doing all right is very little that a person can do so what therefore what i am trying to do is you are you are talking about a problem that's real problem that exists but the mm. remedy probably is to to bring up the next generation in such a way that when they become professor this problem will not mm. rather than uh creating a sort of a uh, punishment procedure where mm-hmm. where such things happen because it would be you know contested it would be difficult for the institutional administrators to do uh mm-hmm. therefore my opinion is that uh, the phd students whom we are mentoring or maybe we are not mentoring but they are phd students uh, uh, in the department we should talk to mm-hmm. them and try to convince them now in mm. india there is a course called research methodology that is compulsory mm. for all phd students 
and I have been teaching that course for some time. And in that mm-hmm. course, I make it a point to tell this to the students. This is a part of this. There's a whole, a whole, uh, uh, quite a few lectures on scientific ethics, and this is mm-hmm. one important component of scientific ethics. That you have when you become faculty members, you have to mentor your students properly. And what are the components mm-hmm. of proper mentor? So these mm-hmm. are the things that I do teach. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. that this is this should be a component of the training of every PhD student. Then, when they become mm-hmm. professors, possibly some of them will not, or many of them will not engage in science. But mm-hmm. yes, that that mm-hmm. is a problem. That is a problem. And uh, unfortunately, my take on this is that when these people who are engaging this kind of practices, seeing uh, PhD students as tools, seeing PhD students as a pair of hands, uh, my experience is when they were PhD students, they, they were actually a pair of hands. Mm. It's, it's a very harsh statement, but uh, mm. in most cases it is true. They have experienced something and then at that time they, they, they were tormented by that, but then they know that it's done, it's, it's okay. So when they become mm. professors, they engage in the same things. But if somebody has seen a proper uh, ethical supervisor who tries to mentor PhD students in the proper way, then they will also become uh, a, a proper uh, mentor when they go. Hmm. So um, coming back to science communication to the people, um, what should be the content of science communication in these outreach events? Well, for that, we need to understand what the main problem is. As I said, that the the main line of thinking or what is said as social thinking, the usual way of thinking prevalent in the society is unscientific. We do not Hmm. apply rationality, we do not apply logic properly, we do not... uh, well, we do not question. Hmm. And therefore, when a scientist engages in outreach, it should not be just a few research areas uh, being conveyed in a manner that possibly that person can understand. This is how normally science hmm. outreach is understood. Right? Hmm. It, is, it is important. I am not uh, demeaning the importance of that line of science outreach, but I would say that more important is to for the scientist to keep in mind that the person I am reaching out to, he or she has a wrong way of thinking. And therefore, my first job is to convey to the people the, the way, as I say, the way science teaches you to think. Now, one important very important aspect of scientific thinking is that don't believe anything without evidence. Right? Mm. Whole, the whole of science rests on that. Don't believe anything without evidence. Mm. Unfortunately, this is something that is never taught in school or college. You will not, never mm. see a textbook. You have gone through school and college. You will never see a textbook that tells you this. That this is the, the bedrock of science. Do not believe anything without evidence. Mm. And since it is not there, people do believe in hundreds of things without evidence. Right? Now, when a scientist goes out to the people, why would the scientist be believed? Because he is a scientist, therefore uh, believing whatever he says. That So the scientist is also believed in a wrong way. <laughs> it's also believed in a wrong way. A bearded scientist mm. with spectacles coming towards school and talking about it, oh, he must be right. No, this is wrong. <laughs> this is wrong. You have to tell those people, question me. Try to figure out if I am telling anything wrong. Without mm. that, uh, the science is not properly conveyed. Now, many times, we try to convey the ideas of science in, in popular language and 
in that the facts and figures come to the center point. For example, mm-hmm. suppose I am mm-hmm. talking to people regarding the new box cause. So, uh, a scientist would say Newton's first law is this, Newton's second law is this, and there is a you know gravitational attraction between bodies, and this is the value of the gravitational constant. So, the facts and figures these become the centerfold. But what really needs to be conveyed is that using these laws, we can predict the motion of the things in the sky. Today. Mm. Mars is here and using these laws we can predict where the Mars will be tomorrow or maybe a year later and then we can check whether that is true or not. And this is Mm -hmm. how science uh, validates whatever it has thought so far. And moreover, if that is conveyed, uh, a, a very important thing would be conveyed that the motion of the heavenly bodies are law governed. We know those mm. laws, and not only that, using those laws, we can predict their motion, and therefore there is no divine hand behind their motion. Mm-hmm. Right. So this needs to be conveyed because this is the central idea that the people need to be told. Now, instead, what happens is that the value of the gravitational constant, uh, with you know so many decimal places, if that becomes the center pole. Yes, you are reaching out to the people, telling uh, uh, the facts of science, all right, but ultimately it doesn't really uh, make an impact on their thinking. So, what our mm-hmm. objective should be to make an impact on their thinking so that uh, they realize their way of thinking was in some ways wrong and they adopt mm-hmm. a correct way of thinking. For that, whatever mm-hmm. we need to tell, we have to tell. Yeah, I feel like uh, this sort of distinction has been made before. I think one of the issues is that we use the word science to mean both things. We uh, use the word science to mean the body of knowledge that we have gained through empirical means. But we also use the word science to indicate the method through which conclusions are drawn. And I think what you're emphasizing now is that in science outreach or communication to the people, we need to be clarifying the method and the process of thinking more rather than the body of knowledge or or pulling out facts and figures from the body of knowledge to just throw at people. Exactly. This is what I mean. Mm. Because this is what really needs to be conveyed to the people. Otherwise, mm. so, it would be just mm-hmm. the facts and figures pulled out, as you said, from the body of knowledge, which they will soon forget. Hmm. Which somebody who is um, not uh, you know coming across this all the time, they will soon forget. Hmm. But what they don't hmm. forget is a method of thinking. Hmm. If that goes into their their you know habitual method of thinking, maybe when they come across something in their daily life, they will also not hmm. believe something without evidence. They will look for hmm. evidence. If somebody tells something, hmm. they will say, "Okay, tell me what's the evidence." Mm-hmm. This is the change that we mm-hmm. need to bring in the society. Mm-hmm. And for that, there has to be a conscious effort by the scientist to present science that way. Mm-hmm. So, what should not be the content of science communication to the people? We already talked a little bit about not just burdening them with facts and figures, but was there something else that you had in mind that should not be the content? There are there are two things. Uh, if mm-hmm. you allow me, I'll talk a little more about what should be uh, conveyed and then, uh-huh. yeah. then, then, then I'll uh, uh, go to the point of mm-hmm. uh, what should not be Now, as I said, the objective is to, to give them a scientific point of view. Now, there are, mm-hmm. uh, there are certain, uh, what should I say, turning points in scientific history mm-hmm. that actually changed our way of thinking. The humanity's way of thinking. Newtonian mechanics is one. Darwin's theory of evolution is another. Mm. Right. Uh, and, and these are sort of hallmarks in science. By telling about Darwin's theory of evolution in a proper way, 
you could convey not only the method of science but also very important facts that everything in this material world changes, goes to evolution. And therefore, there is nothing mm -hmm. static, that nothing unchanging. In fact, earlier people believed that the stars don't change. But once Darwin's mm -hmm. theory of evolution came, people sort of generalized it. Maybe the things that we see as not changing, they're also changing. And then they started looking at the stars with the eye to, mm -hmm. to look at the changes. So the point is, it's a way of thinking. Now, it so happens that the Darwin's theory of evolution is quite regularly attacked by various people. You see, in the United mm -hmm. States, there would be a very large number of people who would say this is just a theory. This is just a theory means that this, uh, I mean, I'm free to believe or not believe it. No? Mm. It is my choice to believe it or not. Science is not like that. Science honors the fact about nature and therefore it is not your choice to believe or not believe. If you want to think correct, then you have to, you have to uh, base yourself on what science has found. In our country, for example, in India, there is a concerted effort to, to uh, for example, uh, the Minister of Education once said that Darwin's theory is wrong because I have not seen a monkey shedding his tail and becoming a man. So look at this line of argument coming from a Minister mm. of Education. And then he said, mm. therefore, it, it will be my effort to sort of drop uh, Darwin's theory from the curriculum and maybe teach like in some states in the United States they teach it just as a theory or one possibility the other possibility mm -hmm. is creationism maybe Adam and Eve were mm -hmm. created and, uh, and that's one possibility one theory, the other theory is Darwin's theory it's up to you to believe so mm -hmm. they also want to change our curriculum uh, that way so what I'm trying to point out is that when you do outreach the ideas that these are the you know critical ideas that mm. you should try to combat. The other thing is that mm. many of the unscientific beliefs and superstitions of people rest on some natural questions they have, which are unanswered. Where mm. did the solar system come from? Where did life come from? Where did art come from? So these are quite mm. natural questions if you think of. And science does have answers to those questions. It is only mm. that those answers are not, not conveyed to the people and therefore they believe all sorts of uh, imaginary answers. And they fall prey to uh, various kinds of unscientific beliefs and superstitions. So one of the mm. things that scientists could do is these are all origin kind of questions. What is the origin of this? Mm. What is the origin of that? If you do not have yeah. the answer to that question, then a human mind does not like vacuum. Therefore, mm. if you do not have the right answer, you will think of a wrong answer. So that is mm. what happens. Mm. In most cases, people think of wrong answers. And they believe it. Then they mm. tell others. They also believe it. So it, it sort of gets uh, communicated. While the scientific answers don't get communicated. So mm. one of the things that scientists could consciously do is to convey these the origin questions, origin of the solar system, origin of earth, origin of moon, origin of life, origin of human. So hmm. these origin questions, these are not always biology questions, these are very much physics or chemistry questions. So a chemist hmm. or physicist or biologist can answer those questions. And moreover, I think that it is not a, it should not be department specific. Any scientist should know answers to hmm. these questions. These are elementary things in science, right? Mm. So, these are the things that should be conveyed, rather than mm -hmm. technical details of some particular development in nanotechnology. Mm -hmm. This actually will not really change their thought process. What we mm -hmm. focus on is something that changes their thought process. Now, mm. what we should not convey. Mm. In science, the way science progresses is that we have some question in mind and mm. we uh, propose hypothesis to answer that question and often there would be many hypotheses and mm. for a long time these hypotheses would be all 
possible hypothesis and then scientists would engage in the pursuit of testing the hypothesis. Each hypothesis would have some kind of a observationally or experimentally testable prediction. These would be tested and thereby the wrong hypothesis would be eliminated. Finally, whatever stands, whatever survives is called the theory. This is how science works. Mm. Now, when the, it is still in the stage of the hypothesis, when it has not yet been tested, then we should not convey to the people because it is yet mm. within the uh, within the domain of the scientists. They have not yet come to a conclusion on that. When they come to a conclusion, they are confident about the result. Then only should be conveyed to the people. Otherwise. What happens is, people often say the scientists today say something, tomorrow say something else. Mm. Yeah. So why should I believe in science? One thing is that that is the strength of science. Today I am saying something, tomorrow I find that that was wrong and therefore I say something else. It is not a matter of shame. It is perfectly fine. Mm. But the people don't understand. And therefore, mm. whenever, whenever some uh, answer has not been obtained for example right now there is a lot of talk about dark matter dark energy uh, wormholes should we go to the people and talk about those things no we should not because these are sort of propositions that are that are yet to be tested mm. right so whenever there is a proposition that is yes yet to be tested we should not go to the people with that idea that's one mm. The other thing is a wrong approach that often scientists take. Suppose you have done some work, communicated a paper, then somebody would go to the press and say that, oh, I have, I have done this and I, uh, this, this paper is now communicated or maybe accepted to publish. No science does not work that way. After you have done a piece of work, it, it goes to a journal, the journal uh, selects reviewers and reviewers review. And then if that is accepted, then it has only passed the first test. It is not mm. the acceptance of the theory. After the paper is mm. published, then scientists all around the globe, if it is the experimental work, will repeat the experiment. If it is theoretical work, will check it. Even if the reviewer has missed to, to uh, notice something, other people will, will notice. Right. And finally, we will uh, we'll come to a conclusion. After some hmm. imagine the situation concerning cold fusion, right? Hmm. Uh, about 20 years back, that uh, paper on cold fusion was, was published. And uh, yes, people uh, uh, were gaga about it, okay? All the problems of the world is being uh, solved. But what happened after that? People tried to replicate that, people tried to repeat the experiment, people did not get the same result, then they confronted. Uh, the scientists mm. uh, and they wrote letters to nature that we have published this paper but are not getting the same result. Nature sent a team to the lab and then found that no, they could not replicate it. The scientists themselves could not replicate it. So ultimately we realized that it was some kind of effect. But in the meantime, mm. if those ideas have been conveyed to the people, what will happen? Will they read nature to find out whether it is wrong? No. They will think that mm. it is right. So, whenever a, something is done, the scientists should not convey to the people, should not give a press statement, uh, mm -hmm. except in the cases where he or she has found something that, that has a direct impact on people's lives. For example, somebody has found a early precursor of an earthquake. Uh, then, yes, you should. Uh, go to the press or you should you should uh, sensitize the administration yes then it's true somebody has mm. found that the the uh, ground water table has gone down so much that maybe three years later there will be no water in that region yes you should mm. go to the press and these are, are issues that directly affect the lives of people and their uh, timing is of interest but in all other areas of research, no, you should not uh, go to the press or give a press statement saying that I have done this work. No, you should not. Mm. Ethics will demand that you wait 
for the idea to be accepted by the scientific community. And that takes mm. four or five years. Mm. Okay. So these are the two things that we should not do. An idea that is not yet accepted or tested, we should not convey to the people. And secondly, whatever you do, even if you think that that's the right result, we should not convey to the people. Now notice that mm. every time you open a paper, uh, well, that's one thing, one problem, is that uh, in the West, most papers have science columns. In India, very few. There's one problem that science mm. does not reach to the people through the newspapers or maybe uh, electronic media also. But in the West, there is. But if you really look at that, you will find that often something is, is, is published that uh, eating this is good, eating that is bad. Maybe one year later, exactly the opposite thing is published. Eating this is good, eating that mm. is get bad. So why? Because the the uh, journalist in question jumped into some particular paper and interviewed mm. the scientist and immediately published it while the idea was mm. not mature enough, tested enough. Mm. Yeah. So, so therefore, we should be a bit careful in taking the ideas to the people uh, and these mm. are the things that should be done. So we have kind of come naturally to one one other topic that you wanted to talk about, which is what should be the role of print and electronic media in all of these things that we're talking about? Firstly, it is extremely important for the media, print and electronic media, to regularly publish the developments in science. It's mm. important because that is how uh, people get to know what is happening. Hmm. Otherwise, people see science only as a generator of technology. Hmm. We have cell phones in our pockets, the people on hmm. the street has, and he acknowledges, okay, this is a product of science. But science has come to them in form of a technology, not hmm. in form of idea, not in form of hmm. concept. So, Therefore, it is necessary for the uh, print and electronic media to be proactive to find out what is mm. happening in the scientific sphere, take it to the people, and with those caveats that I just mentioned. Mm. You mm. have to check whether that idea is largely accepted by the scientific community, tested by the scientific community or not. Just one mm. paper has been published, that should not do it. Besides, the, the, there has to be journalists in all newspapers and print media who exclusively work on this. Okay. Mm -hmm. The reason that Indian uh, newspapers mm -hmm. do not have it is a peculiar perception that science does not sell. Politics does, mm -hmm. scandals mm -hmm. do, but science mm -hmm. does not sell. Well, that is a that's a wrong uh, pursuit. If presented properly, science is also something that is you know lapped up by people. People like to read if presented properly, and therefore mm -hmm. it is necessary to train a group of people who are otherwise educated in science, train in the art of scientific communication. Mm -hmm. How would you express an idea? in a language that people would relate to. It's not only follow. Often, we, mm -hmm. we try to simplify the language and believe that this is something that people will follow. More important is, that person who is reading it has a life, has experiences, so therefore he mm -hmm. has a kind of thinking born out of his interaction with his immediate surroundings. And unless mm -hmm. he can relate to something, you will never be able to understand this, even if it is written in very simple language. So, mm. so this is something that needs to be learned. It's an art. Mm. This is something that needs mm. to be learned. Uh, Isaac Asimov was a master of that art. Uh, Stephen Weinberg was a master of that art. But not many mm. people are. Mm. So, uh, therefore, and there, there are very good uh, science journalists in many of the Western 
newspapers. I've seen that. I really admire them. But the point is that the next generation must be brought up and science journalism must become a lucrative profession. Hmm. Hmm. Unless it is a lucrative hmm. profession, why should a you know talented uh, science student take or aspire to be a science journalist? Therefore, hmm. it, it, it has to be a lucrative uh, profession. If that happens, many things will change because the ideas of science will reach the people. Newspapers, print media, electronic media, and social media, these things are you know, read by hundreds of uh, millions of people. And therefore, uh, this is this is the right medium to take science to the people. But often, mm. since these are controlled with a profit motive, therefore they see what really sells, and there is a general perception that science doesn't sell, and it is a problem. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so my last question to you is, um, how do you see the attitude surrounding science? in today's Indian society and politics and in which direction do you think it's evolving in recent times? Well, it is a uh, a tricky question. The Mm -hmm. answer would be controversial. But Mm -hmm. you would see that now there is a organized attempt to undermine science. More importantly, to undermine scientific bent of mind, scientific thinking. In mm. various ways, various unscientific ideas are propagated by the people uh, who have political power. And since mm. they are leaders, they are followers, therefore, whatever they say are believed by people, and this is causing immeasurable harm to the scientific atmosphere in the country. Uh, so in India, this problem is there, and the scientific community has to oppose this kind of efforts. But a more uh, problematic thing is that there is now a new education policy which has been tabled in 2020, and which is now being sort of implemented, and it uh, proposes to introduce courses on something called Indian knowledge systems. And hmm. what constitutes Indian knowledge systems is a fuzzy area. Fuzzy area. Anybody can think that this is the Indian knowledge system. Hmm. And uh, the leaders of the government often have gone on record saying that in the you know, you know uh, 6,000, 7,000 years back, India had uh, plastic surgery that could plant an elephant head on a human torso. Uh, hmm. somebody saying that there was television and internet in the days of the Mahabharata because how else could Sanjay give a running commentary of the war? So, see, some, for some people, these are the Indian knowledge system. And now we can see yeah. that these are slowly making their way into the school's curriculum. And this is really dangerous because at that age, the schools are unable to uh, hmm. distinguish between truth and falsehood. And if these are taught to students, then it is really dangerous. So mm. this is uh, therefore in India, science uh, scientists have a bigger role to play in defending science. These are these are mm. different ways attacks on science or scientific thinking, and the scientific community has to stand up. Mm. Um, so those were. All of my questions, sir, it's about, we took about one hour. And uh, thanks a lot for uh, answering me those questions. Welcome. Thanks for hanging out in the Room of Lives. Take care. Until next time.